Well, after gold was discovered in California in 1848, thousands of people made their way west in search of a fortune. By 1860, just 10 years after it had become a state, the population of California was 380,000 people. With all the people moving west, there was a need. How do we get messages from one end to the other? How do we get mail and packages from the east to the west? Three men, William Russell, Alexander Majors, and William Waddell, founded the Pony Express, hoping to speed up the transport of mail delivery. Rather than transporting goods and letters by stagecoach, which would take quite a while, they proposed a plan that could get mail from Missouri to California in 10 days. They created stations, about 190 of them in total, about 10 miles apart, and single riders would, would take a pouch full of mail and go as fast as they could to the next station where they would either switch riders or switch horses. For its day, it was a pretty smart solution to a problem that humanity was facing. At each station that they would do this, they would get re revitalized and re-energized, and it solved seemingly the problem of these long stagecoach journeys. It only lasted 18 months, though. They didn't get the government contract that they had hoped, a and soon enough it would have dissolved anyway because something else was coming that would get things there a lot faster and more stable, and it was the Transcontinental Railroad that would come just eight years later. But it was an incredible Example of ingenuity to a serious problem. You think of how far we've come in about 150 years, 170 years. But we can send something overnight, no matter how big it is, it can go overnight from here to almost anywhere. We can send an email in a matter of seconds. Uh, we can hold our phones in front of our faces and see someone on the other side of the planet face to face talking at the same time. And as I was thinking about this entire letter that Jude wrote to not just one church but to all Christians, I started to think about how difficult it would have been for this letter to even transport to those churches. I started thinking through how difficult it was in the ancient world to get a letter a few hundred or a few thousand miles away. Letters would travel often by ship or caravan uh, over land, and it would be safe to say that many letters were lost to weather or to piracy. To send a letter in the ancient world, one had to be one of two things, either rich or lucky. Rich meaning that you could pay someone to take it for you, or lucky that you just happened to run into someone who was going that direction anyway. A letter has survived from the ancient times, and in it there are specific instructions for delivery to the recipient. As I'm reading this, think about how your uh, mail delivery person would respond to these directions. And this is a quote from an ancient letter. From the moon gate, walk as if toward the granaries. When you come to the first street, turn left behind the thermae when there is a shrine and go westward. Go down the steps and up the others and turn right after the precinct of the temple. On the right side, there is a seven-story seven house. And on top of the gatehouse, a statue of fortune opposite a basket weaving shop. Inquire there or uh, inform the concierge and you will be informed. And shout yourself, Lucius will answer you. So just do all of these things. Go into the city and, and you find a basket weaving shop. And if you can't find that, just scream Lucius' name and he'll yell down to you from the top of his seven-story house. Right? These were the directions that were part of a letter that was sent. See, we don't have instructions 
like this included in Scripture, but we can assume that, that Jude and Paul and all of those other writers were writing instructions for how to get their letters to churches. They didn't have the street addresses that we have. There weren't giant crosses on top of buildings like we have that if nobody knows how to get to our church, you can say, yeah, that, that formerly orange brick building, now it's a gray brick building, but it's a really tall one. The tallest one in Alcoa, go where that big tall cross is, the steeple. It's pretty easy to find. But here they were delivering letters to, to underground churches, churches that were meeting in people's homes. So it was, these letters were important and they were difficult to get to. And so throughout our study and throughout my study of Jude, I'm thinking through how much effort would have gone into writing these letters and having them delivered. You don't go through all that trouble unless they're important. I'm not mailing my parents or a friend something overnight unless it has to be there overnight. A 52 or whatever the stamps are now, I don't know, they keep going up, but whatever the stamps cost will suffice. You can wait your three or four days to get your letter, unless it's important. Years ago, when my wife and I and our family, we moved to Orlando, uh, we had to have uh, uh, a marriage certificate because my wife's last name on her, on her uh, birth certificate did not match the certificate or the uh, driver's license from the previous state we lived in. Well, problem was our marriage certificate's in Virginia. And so I had to call my dad. I said, Dad, we need our driver's license. We need these now. You need to, can, can you help me? And he said, yeah. So he goes down to the courthouse, gets it, and he overnights that letter. We needed it. If it was just a, hey, how you doing, or a card or a birthday card, that can wait. But it needed to be done now. And the letter that Jude is writing to the church is something that the church needed immediately. It's of utmost importance. And I hope you hear the urgency in Jude's words. I hope you hear this loving correction that's about to come. Not just to one church, but to all churches. This is not uh, written for a specific church in mind, but Christians everywhere. And you'll see as we journey through this book, the reason why he's writing to Christians everywhere. Because every Christian struggles with what Jude is writing about. Every single one of us knows people who have given up on the faith. Every one of us. And the early church was full of people who had proclaimed faith in Christ and then turned their back on him and on the church. It had lost its way and Jude was determined to help them to get back to their first love. So there are a few reasons why we're preaching through Jude and really three main ones. The first being, um, we, we like new things sometimes, don't we? New babies, new cars. We, we, we like the, the newness of things. So I like starting a book of the Bible. But that's not really the main reason. Because even though we like new things and most of us have not delved into the study of, of the book of Jude, it's new to us, but it's also one of the most neglected books of the Bible. It's one of the ten least read and least studied books of the Bible. So I think we ought to take time to, to read through it, to study it. It's short. It's only 25 verses long, so there may be a tendency to think that it doesn't have the meat that, say, Romans does, or the wonderful narratives that Genesis does. But Jude has a lot to say, not only to the ancient church, but to the modern church as well. And this leads to the second reason I'm preaching through Jude. 
we desperately need to hear it. People in the early church were distorting God's grace and denying the lordship of Christ. Christians today, we're guilty of the very same thing, especially in our times of prosperity and ease. The grace of God becomes nothing more than a Bible verse that we spend $50 on at Hobby Lobby. As a people, it seems that we've lost our will to discern. We've let our guard down because at least in America, it is so easy to be a Christian. It often doesn't require very much sacrifice, does it? Yeah, we've got to wake up early to go to church. This brings us to the third reason we're going through Jude. This book gives us hope as we're surrounded by apostasy. Now, you'll hear this word apostasy or apostate. Uh, as It's not in Jude, but the idea is in Jude. And you'll hear this uh, throughout our study. And apostasy is simply uh, a, def a word that defines a falling away from the core doctrines of the faith and into heresy. It could also mean a complete rejection of the faith. So we all know people who once claimed to follow Christ and now have rejected everything that they said they once believed. We, we all know people, and this is a trendy term, but who have, who have deconstructed their faith, who have systematically gone through each aspect of what they once believed and torn it down to the point where there is literally nothing left. We know people who've done that. We know people who've turned away from the core doctrines of the faith, those, those pillars that hold up everything that we believe, and they've turned away from those things. This is what Jude addresses. So you can see why Jude is relevant for us today. You can see why we need to hear this message, why we need to hear the word from Jude that's been uh, 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 super, uh, uh, superintended by the Holy Spirit that God's word is coming through this person, Jude. We need to hear this message because we are surrounded by what he was surrounded by. Apostasy is everywhere. People who were once with us are not now. Where people who were once with us are now against us and opposed to the, the gospel that we celebrate. What do we do now? Where Paul wrote to individuals or churches in a unique geographic area, the uniqueness of Jude is that he's writing to none of those. He's writing to Christians in general. It's no specific group. It's no specific church. And so that makes it, makes it even more relevant to us. It's a, a book written to correct behavior that was plaguing the church. It was tarnishing the gospel. It was leading people into sin. It was causing people to fall away from the faith. You say, well, how do you get all this from 25 verses? Read on. As we study this, you'll see this, and you'll, I think if you haven't studied Jude before, you'll be amazed at how relevant this actually is. Well, this morning we're looking at just two verses. And the title of the sermon this morning is a question that I think Jude answers in verses 1 and 2. Who is a Christian? It's hard to correct bad behavior if you don't have good behavior to compare it to. For Christians, we can't just say don't do something. We have to tell them what they need to do, and we train our children up that way. We have to point someone to an appropriate example if we're hoping that they make changes that they need. So Jude lists things that he was. Before his correction comes, he's saying, here's what I am. This is our example. You want to know what a Christian is? Read these first two verses. The, the first point that we see in Jude's writing is that a Christian is someone who knows their place. 
I'm not saying like you see in a, a movie from the 50s where a bully comes up and tells a kid, you better know your place. I'm not saying that. That's not what Jude is talking about. What I'm saying is that Jude understood who he was in relation to who Christ is. Notice in verse 1 what he says and the order in which he says it. Jude, a servant of Jesus and a brother of James. The word servant is a, is a New Testament word that shows up a lot. It's doulos. It, it can be translated bondservant or slave even. This is, the literal definition is slave, but what we see in the New Testament is this uh, metaphorical idea of slavery. It's not that he's physically in chains. It's not that he is, is, is physically in bondage, but rather he's given himself up for another's will. For Jude, his life is used by Christ. He has said, I've died to myself, I've given up what I want, and I'm giving everything that I have for the cause of Christ. That's what he is. He's a slave, a servant to Christ. He is Serving at the will of his master, Jesus. Now what's striking, what's really striking is Jude does the exact same thing James does in James 1.1. He calls himself, first and foremost, a servant of Christ. These are half-brothers, most likely, of Jesus. Now they could have said, hey, do you know who I am? You know, when those celebrities get pulled over, the politicians get pulled over by the police, you can see those body cam videos now, and, and you see these videos, and the guy says, do you know who I am? And the cop usually says, no, I don't care. James and Jude could have pulled that. They could have said, listen, listen, I grew up with Jesus. I, I know Jesus. Tr trust me, I'm the closest person to Jesus that there is. You don't get any closer than this. We were raised in the same home. We, we grew up around the same friends. We, we did the same, the same things together. But neither man says that. Those of you who have siblings, would you ever say anything nice about your siblings like J Jude and James have done? No. You know what they say? That we are bond servants. Not we're brothers. Not, that's not the first thing they say. I'm not even, they didn't even say they're brothers of Jesus. Jude says... I'm a follower of Christ, I'm a bondservant to Christ, I'm a brother of James too. He knows his place. He knows that he is serving Jesus. He knows that that's his calling, that that's his purpose. And that's what I mean when I say that a Christian is someone who knows their place. In Luke 14, Jesus says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now listen, Jesus, kids, don't, Jesus doesn't want you to hate your mom and dad. That's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is that your faith, your Christian faith, your following after Christ will come at a cost. And if you're not willing to say, love you, mom and dad, but Jesus matters more. I, I, I love you, brother and sister, but Jesus matters more. If you're not willing to do that, you're not willing to follow Christ fully. Jesus doesn't want us to hate one another. Your life may not get easier. We know that for millions of Christians living in hostile lands right now. But for the Christian life, it will be difficult and it will come at a cost. Because you'll have to make choices. Jesus, or whatever you want from life. And so James and Jude, both, the half-brothers of Christ, both said, what I want doesn't matter anymore. I can make the claim on this that I, I still want those things. I still need these things in my life. 
No, I'm following after Jesus. They are now servants to the will of Christ, and whatever he wants is what they'll do. And whatever the outcome, whatever the pain, whatever the future, doesn't really matter because they know that they are secure in Christ. So a Christian is someone who knows their place. A Christian is also someone who is called. Jude writes this letter to those who are called. Now some will see that and see that as an invitation, but I think there's so much more involved in a calling than a mere invitation. Those who God calls to himself are brought to faith in Christ through the proclamation of the gospel. In John 6, Jesus says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So no one can come to God unless God first draws them. Not everyone is drawn because everyone who is drawn to Jesus will be raised up. Now, how this works is a mystery. There's a general call like the one we see in Matthew chapter 11 where Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's a, a general call that goes out to, to everyone. But what do we do with that when we read scripture that very clearly says, no one seeks after God? Left to ourselves, we would always choose evil and wickedness. This is what, where the effectual call comes in. And this is where we get Romans 8, 28 through 30, which Paul says this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. One theologian says this is, uh, defines an effectual calling as this, an act of God the Father speaking through human proclamation of the gospel in which he summons people to himself in such a way that they respond in human faith, or saving faith, excuse me. Now, on the surface, we read Matthew 11 and we read Romans 8, and they kind of seem to contradict. Does the Bible say that all who are called are raised on the last day, and that working backwards, everyone who is glorified was first justified, and before that they were called, and before that they were predestined? How do we answer this? We don't. We can't. How do we work God's sovereignty with human responsibility? Because we clearly see both of those in Scripture. How do we work this together? And the answer is we don't. It's a mystery how God both predestines us for salvation and demands that we repent of our sin and trust in Christ. I don't understand how our responsibility to repent works with God's sovereignty over all things. I have no earthly idea. But I can't ignore them either. If we focus just on the sovereignty of God, we ignore the missional mandate that God has given to us for all of us to go out into the world and be missionaries and proclaim the gospel. If we focus only on the human response, we're left with a God who's waiting for us to make a, a response, trying to figure out ways to convince us to choose him. There's a mystery to it that we wrestle with. There's absolutely a mystery to the ways of God. And often what we see is the, the sides are, are dug in and they're throbbing at each other and we, we view each other as the opposite side when we would be obviously much better off embracing 
the mystery that no matter what, God will always do what is right and what is just. So why did Jude say that he was called? Well, here's the reason. Jude said that he was called by God because uh, people were suffering at this point, and it would have been easy for people to say, well, if we just work harder, if we just try harder, if we just do more, if we endure, if we work for ourselves, if we continue to strive for endurance, then we'll be okay. And Jude said, no. You have been called to salvation by God. You have been given salvation by God. And you are secure in your salvation by God. It is not your own works that has given you this. It is nothing that you've done. And because it's nothing that you've done, you can rest assured that what you have is good. There is so much involved where the, the picture of God and his people are, are so similar to what a good parent and their children have you noticed that? There's, so much, there's no mistake that God is the Father, that calls the Father is part of the Trinity. That's not an accident. It's not something we've just created. When my children do something on their own, often they don't know what they're doing because they're children. That's what children do. You learn from your mistakes. Let me put this in the light socket and see if this works. No, don't do that. But if dad, this has limits, but if dad goes and puts something in there, they trust that what, what's going to happen is going to work. They, they believe in their dad, that their dad knows, and it's probably not the best example, but that their dad knows what he's doing. There's a, a, a time that my kids can rest at that point. Or when a coach tells a player, hey, here's what you need to do at the end of the game. Here's the play that I'm drawing up. The player can be freed from having to think about that on their own. They can rest in the, the, uh, the, the ability of their coach to tell them what to do and that the coach knows what he's saying. And this is what Jude's telling the church. Is he's saying, look, your salvation was the gift of God. You've got nothing to worry about. You're safe. You're secure. And we see this in those who God calls, he also loves. Now think about the, the love that God has for you. You and I were created in the image of God. Every single human being was created in the image of God, no matter what disability, no matter what we look like, no matter uh, uh, anything, no matter what sins we do, we're all created in the image of God. And God still loves us. God has a special love for his creation. All of his creation matters, but we matter more than trees. Now, Jesus is going to come to restore all of this. The, all of creation is, is going to be restored, but there is a special relationship Jesus did not come to save or give salvation to trees. He just didn't. But the problem is, is that even though we're created in the image of God, and God has a special love for his creation, we're kind of unlovable, aren't we? Not to one another. But in comparison to the holiness of God, we are unlovable. We have willingly rebelled. We've decided to make idols in our hearts. We've, we've done everything that God says don't do, and we've celebrated it. And yet God still chose to love us anyway. We love because he first loved us. John 3.16 says that God loves people, but there is a special kind of love that God has for his people, his children. Think of it this way. 
You saw all those noisy children running across the room this morning? Don't you love hearing the pounding of the bill? I just, I, the kids just run across, and I just want to hear them stomp and jump, and the more the merrier. I want this whole building to feel like an earthquake. I love every single one of those kids that comes through our ch church ministry. I, I love spending Wednesday nights with them. I'm, I'm in there Wednesday nights, and I get to play games with them, and I get to hang out with them, and I get to throw things at them when we play dodgeball, and some kids I throw out a little bit more. I'll tell you later. But I love, I love playing with those kids, and I love teaching them the word of God. We're going through the book of Acts right now, and I love just telling them the story of the early church and what God did through these faithful believers at the beginning of the church. And I love those kids. But I love my kids more. Just being honest. I, I love my own three children more than I love all of your kids. And I hope that you would feel the same. That your kids are extremely special. You may love all kids, but, but your kids are your kids. They're, they are yours. They belong to you. It's a different kind of love. And for those who are in Christ, the people who Jude is writing to, God's love is different. It's the love that a good father gives to his children. It's the love that a good mother gives to her children. 1 John 4.10 says this. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, God loved us and showed that love in doing the one thing that only he could do, provide a substitute for us. See, our sin deserved God's wrath. Our sin deserved, or we deserve through our sin to be punished forever. Not so much because of one sin that we do, but because we who we do it against. And we deserve the wrath of God. And so there was only one person that could be our substitute. Only a person could sub be a substitute for another person. And only God is perfect. And so Jesus fully God, became fully man. Served the purpose of being our substitute. The, the lamb that ended all substitutes. The lamb that ended the entire sacrificial system. No need for killing animals anymore because Jesus covers our sins. This is love. And I, every time I think of the gospel, I think of this. How many of us, certainly not me, how many of us would sacrifice our own children for strangers? How, how many of us would sacrifice our kids for anyone? But yet God did this. This is the love that Christians experience. The love of God and the sacrifice of his son. And this is the love that Jude speaks of. Third, a Christian is someone who is kept. You see that Jude opens and closes his book by talking about someone who is kept. It's a reminder that God keeps his people. It's God who gave you all that you have. You didn't earn it, and you can't lose it. It's a gift from God, and God is the only one who can give us faith and keep us in faith. There are many Christians who, who struggle with security. I've counseled them. I've sat next to them in restaurants. I, I've talked to them over tables, and, 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 and many of you probably right now are struggling with your own security. That if you were to die today, you're wondering, done a lot of bad stuff. I, I, I've done too much, man. Yes, I said a prayer at Vacation Bible School when I was seven, but I'm just not sure that it stuck. I've met those people. Many of us have, have been there where we question whether we're, I mean, we, we don't question God's goodness, but we question our own goodness. 
and our own faithfulness. Remember that the original readers of this letter would have been Christians facing incredible persecution. What do you need most when you're facing that? When figuratively bullets are flying past your head, what, what do you need most? You need assurance that your trials are not in vain. And that you were still loved and kept by God. That's what you need to hear. When you're going through a difficult time in your life, what do you need? You need someone to listen to you. You need someone to hug you. You need someone to sit with you. Why? You need someone to tell you that everything's going to be okay, right? That's what we want to hear. Sometimes it's not okay, but that's what we want to hear. Things are going to be okay. You're going to get through this. And Judah's saying, church, no matter what happens to you, no matter what the world does to you, no matter what your enemies do to you, God is still faithful. He's made you a promise. He's going to keep it. You are okay. Yes, you may suffer along the way, but you understand that at the end, your reward comes. That you get these promises then. And it may be difficult. It may be hard. But, but you keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes on the end goal where the gospel is informing everything that you do. And your trials, yeah, they're not going to be fun. Yes, they'll be difficult. But you're still safe. Finally, a Christian is someone who experiences abundant blessings. Some people would say, well, that's a lot of money and a lot of, a lot of cars and fancy cars and planes and five houses. No, that's not what he's talking about. Certainly not for the early church. Look at verse 2. It says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. The first thing we see is mercy. It's used 600 times in the Old Testament and nearly 80 in the New Testament. One writer says this, that mercy is a characteristic of God that moves him to seek a relationship with persons who have no right to be in a relationship with him. That's all of us. We are objects of mercy. And because of that, we are to give mercy. Jesus says in Matthew 5, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy defined as this, compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. This is by definition what we are recipients of, isn't it? That we should have faced the penalty, the punishment that Christ had on the cross. That should have been you and me. We should have carried the wrath of God. We should have felt that. And yet God gives mercy to us. That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We give mercy because we've been given mercy. We are recipients or objects of the greatest example of mercy that has ever existed. And that's God bringing enemies into his family. The second word Jude uses is peace. This is used more than 90 times in the New Testament. Uh, but it's also connected with the Hebrew word shalom. Most of you have heard that. It's wholeness or completeness. Paul says in Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says in Matthew 5, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This idea of peace runs throughout all of Scripture. Finally, the third word Jude uses is love. 1 John 4, 8. If anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. 
these three words are descriptors of who God is and what God makes us to be. This is, this is our aim as a Christian. So you're starting to see in these two little verses, and to be honest with you, Jude may not have even understood exactly what he was writing. The Holy Spirit moved in him so that Jude was writing in his own personality. But the fact is, Jude probably never in a million years thought, 2,000 years later, some guy is going to be parsing these two verses and telling people what a Christian really is. But that's what we see. Jude, a faithful Christian, explaining who he is in Christ for us to see. God makes us merciful, peaceful, and loving. And my aim this morning uh, was to show how Jude's words give us an example or an explanation of what a Christian is. A Christian knows their place. A Christian is called, loved, and kept. A Christian is someone who experiences abundant blessings. Now, if you're not a Christian, if, if you've never experienced these things, if you, if you don't quite understand this, look at the description that Jude gives. And I'd ask you this first question, is, is this a defining characteristic of who you are? Does it describe you? If it's not you, the only response that's correct to this, the only reasonable response for you to do right now is to get on your knees and beg God for forgiveness, and God gives it to you. To plead with God, to say, God, forgive me of my sin. I've broken your law. I stand guilty before you. And you know what God says? You're forgiven. Not only that you're forgiven, let me clothe you in the righteousness of my son. Let me make you a, a prince. Let me give you all of that that, that that I give to my children. I'm going to welcome you into my home and give you all the benefits and privileges that being a child of God has. This is the beauty of the gospel. And for the Christians here, if people ask, if, if, if you ask people around you or if I ask people who are in your circle of friends and I said, uh, does this person, are they an example of what we see in Jude 1 and 2? What would they say? Is this person merciful, peaceful, loving? Are they clearly called? Are they loved? What would people say? Would they say, yes, this person exhibits these characteristics and qualities? Absolutely, without question. See, I think that as Christians, we often struggle with what Jude's writing, just in these first two verses. I think that we often don't embrace the truth that we are called, loved, and kept. I think we waver. We have a tendency, at least I do, I have a tendency to kind of go back and forth. I feel days where I feel really loved where I'm, I'm certain of my calling, and I'm certain that I'm, that I'm safe in the hands of God, and then other days I'm kind of like, mm, I'm struggling. And it's never a struggle with God. It's a struggle with me. It's a struggle with my flesh that, that is constantly reminding me, or constantly telling me, you aren't safe, you aren't kept, you aren't loved, you aren't called. Here. It's not with God. And I think so many of us have, have those doubts. We've had those questions in our life where we, we aren't sure, we aren't certain. These struggles that we have, we've allowed doubt to take over us and we, we're doubting the promises that God has given to us. Now if that's you, and that's a, a lot of people, I beg you, stick with this study because I think at the end you'll find that 
Jude has a lot to say to you. You'll see some encouragement. You'll see some discipline. You'll see a man who deeply loved the Lord and loved his church, and you'll find some correction in your own life. This passage may seem meaningless to you. It may not look that important. It may just seem like it's a greeting. It's just, there's nothing deep theologically uh, uh, truthful in these words. But I hope that you've seen how impactful these words are for the Christian life. We're reminded that God, the creator of all things, has called us to himself. We're reminded that he loves us and that we are his children. And it reminds us that we are kept safe and secure in the hands of God. Church, this is important. All of God's word is important, but this is important for us today. We need to hear this. We're surrounded by apostasy. We're surrounded by false teaching. We hear stuff all the time that eh, just doesn't ring true. We're surrounded by people who have completely given up on the faith. What is our response? This is important. It's important for our own daily lives to, to be merciful, to be peaceful, to be loving, to exhibit the fruits of a Christian life. And as we dive deeper into Jude, we'll see some, some harsh language, some tough talk, some needed correction. The church was in a crisis and people were abandoning the faith. They were giving up on everything that they said they once believed. But through all of this, I pray, I pray that you see that this is what colors Jude's writing. Mercy, peace, and love. He's been the recipient of that, as you have been, Christian. And now he's exhibiting that and he wants people to never give that up. Embrace this gift that God has given to you. In a world that has distorted these three things, let us cling to Christ. Let us cling to Christ and his gospel and exhibit mercy, peace, and love. Because God has first given those to us.